Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have Rod Dreher with us today. He is familiar to First Things readers, of course. He's the senior editor at the American Conservative. He's written and edited for many places, the New York Post, the Dallas Morning News, National Review, commentaries in Wall Street Journal, New York Times, uh, well-known for the Benedict option. I, I actually first came across uh, uh, Rod's work boy, about almost 20 years ago now with the Crunchy Cons book, which I thought was, I was a, I was a liberal at the time, and I uh, found, hmm, this is, this is interesting. Uh, but there are other, How Dante Can Save Your Life, another book. There is a new book just out. It's called Live Not By Lies, a manual for Christian dissidents. Uh, Rod, thank you for joining us. Mark, thanks for having me on. Um, you know, maybe I didn't say that title right. Is it, Live not by lies, doggone it. Is that better? <laughs> okay. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. I, the, the sense of the book, the spirit of the book, and the tone of the book is, Marshall was too strong a word for it, but it, it is urgent. Uh, and I, I want people to read this and to understand the the seriousness of, and the urgency of the times we're in and to do something about it. But when I was going back and forth with the art department at Sentinel about the cover, they came at me with a couple of sort of meditative, mystical, spiritual covers. I said, no, 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 this is absolutely wrong. And I ended up suggesting to them that they do something with Soviet constructivism, you know, the, the sort of style that we're all familiar with from yep. Soviet propaganda posters. But I wanted to take that and use and flip it around and use it to talk uh, about pro-Christian ideas and, and, and in the face of this struggle that we're now in the middle of. And they came up with this, this fantastic cover showing a, a, a Christian uh, heaving across uphill. And I, I love it. I think that if you look at the cover of this book, you will absolutely know uh, the kind of book that you're about to read. You, you know, and, and this may this may get right to that. You dedicate the book and have opening pages to Father Tomislav Kolakovich. Who was he? Uh, he is one of the unsung heroes of the 20th century. And I didn't know who this guy was until I went to Bratislava, the capital of Slovakia, just over a year ago. Uh, he was a Jesuit, a Croatian Jesuit whose original name was uh, Poglayan. Uh, he was doing underground anti-Nazi work in Zagreb in 1943 when he got a tip-off that the Gestapo was coming for him. So he slipped out of the country, went to Slovakia, and used his mother's maiden name, Kolakovic, to that, that became his sort of nom de guerre. 
he began to teach in the local Catholic university. And because Kolakovich had been educated at the Rusikum, the Vatican's Russian college, uh, for missionary work in the Soviet Union, he understood the communist mindset. And he told his Catholic students, listen, the good news is the Germans are going to lose this war. The bad news is this country is going to come under control of the communists, of the Soviets. We have got to get ready for it because the first thing they're going to do is come after the church. So what Kolakovich did was set up a network of prayer groups around the Slo- uh, around Slovakia, uh, usually young Catholics who would come together with sympathetic priests for mass, for Bible study, for uh, discussions. But they also learned things like the arts of resistance. They learned how to resist a, uh, an interrogation. And uh, the bishops of Slovakia at the time, they were pretty critical of him. They told him he was an alarmist, that things weren't going to get that bad. But that did not deter Father Kolakovich. Well, in, uh, and these, prayer, these groups spread all around the country. They called them the family. Well, in 1946, after the war, the Slovak government, or the Czechoslovak government, because it was united, uh, expelled Kolakovich. And in 1948, when the, the Iron Curtain came down, sure enough, the first thing they did was go after the priest. But Kolakovich, his network became the underground church and the resistance. Uh, and if it had not been for him, for what that man did, and the fact that there were young Catholics who who fought, believed him and followed him, there would not have been much of an underground church in that country. And uh, I mean, what a prophet he was. And I, I dedicate the book to him because I think we need a figure like him in the country in America right now to prepare us for what's coming. You know, a little background. When did you start worrying that we were moving not toward just sort of more left-wing policies on, on state regulations, or but that we were drifting into really a soft totalitarian condition, that, that it was coming? When, when, when did that hit you? Was there, was there a particular moment? There was. There was. And it was in uh, 2015, I believe it was, when... Whenever the Indiana did the RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, uh, they, the state legislature tried to pass a state version of the federal RIFRA, and major corporations came down like a ton of bricks on the state, calling it bigoted and threatening boycotts and so on. Uh, you might remember, your listeners might remember, a little evangelical-owned pizza parlor called Memories Pizza, small town in Indiana. Uh, a TV reporter went to this, during this controversy, it went to Memories Pizza and asked the evangelical owners, would you cater a wedding? And they said, well, no, of course, we'll serve gay customers, but it's against our belief to cater a gay wedding. That set off this monstrous uh, 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 flash mob, national flash mob of people coming down, threatened to burn the place down, to kill its owners. They had to close up. I got a call around that time, Mark, from a doctor at the Mayo Clinic. Guy said he was Catholic, uh, and he said his elderly mother, who lives with him and his wife, had been born and raised in Czechoslovakia, was a faithful Catholic, and had spent six years in prison, in fact, for her Catholic belief in the 50s. She's now elderly, living with them, and said, son, the things I'm seeing happen in this country remind me of what happened in my youth in Czechoslovakia. And she was talking specifically about Memories Pizza, the, the way the mob, the ideological mob came up. Well, I thought that was a little bit out there. You know, I have an elderly mother too, and she watches a lot of 
cable news and gets really upset. But I, I contacted some Hungarians I knew who had uh, defected in the 1960s uh, to England. And in fact, Bela, the, the, the husband, is a retired mathematics don at Trinity College. I put the question to them. Does things happening now remind you of back then? And they said, absolutely. We're watching the news every day, reading the papers, and we're thinking this is like our youth. So, Mark, after that, I made a point. Every time I would travel somewhere to conferences, to give speeches, and I would meet someone in America who had grown up in the Soviet bloc, I put the question to them. And unfailingly, they said yes. And if you talk to them long enough, they would get angry that Americans were not taking this seriously. So for five years, I've been looking into this and finding, accumulating more and more evidence. And uh, now the alarm bells are ringing uh, so loud we can't afford to ignore them. You say when you go back to the Slovakian situation that Christians in Slovakia were, quote, unready. That they, they just, they, they could not see, they could not imagine that this was coming even as evidence were was mounting right in front of their noses. You see the same parallel here? Oh, absolutely. Uh, we just can't get our minds around it. it and I think part of this is we're operating from a Cold War mindset about what totalitarianism is. You know, for us, totalitarianism is the Gulag, the KGB, uh, George Orwell's 1984. But in fact, I believe that we are, this is why I call it soft totalitarianism. It's going to be much more uh, a case of Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, a version of that, in which the, the totalitarian state uh, controlled people by manipulating their pleasures, right? And I, I think that's a much more effective way in our uh, bourgeois capitalist society to force people to comply. You don't need the KGB uh, and gulags when you have, um, you have the surveillance capitalism uh, and a way to cut people off from the economy uh, by if they have you know, dissident thoughts. And this is what we're going to see. But I think that if people have it in their mind that, that it's not totalitarianism unless we have the KGB calling us off to the gulag, then they're going to completely miss what's happening. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to get to that term l- later in the book, the surveillance capitalism uh, that you bring up. But you, you quote er- earlier on uh, Czesław Milos attributing to uh, both the the, the, the the temptation, as you put it, of totalitarianism and kind of the kind of the uh, unwillingness of people to realize it's happening to the decline, the general decline of religion. You see the same thing. You you want to you want to make the same cause here in the United States? Well, yeah, I, I think that we have we are in a situation here in the U.S. where Christianity has been hollowed out. It is now what our, the sociologist Christian Smith calls moralistic therapeutic deism. Uh, it is a sort of uh, spiritualized psychological strategy for for keeping ourselves happy at all times and serene at all times. And uh, I, I think that this has this decadence within Christianity has allowed us to become blind to the threats to not only to the faith, but to what it means to be a human being. Things that we that we have taken for granted for so long, but now it has been taken out from under us just in the past 50 years. I mean, you know, Philip Reef, the great sociologist, was an unbelieving Jew, but he recognized in the mid 60s his great book, the um, 
triumph of the therapeutic, that the loss of a sense of of right and wrong, ultimate right and wrong, uh, in the because of the therapeutic revolution, is going to be more revolutionary than even the Bolshevik revolution was, and it's true. It, it has happened now. Uh, I think also this is something Miłosz warns about. Said that uh, the people of Eastern Europe woke up one day to realize that the sort of conversations that had previously only been had in coffee shops and among intellectual circles were suddenly the ideas that were discussed there were suddenly ruling their lives. This is absolutely what's happened to us. Like from academia, yeah, spreading out. Right, right, right. People. I remember when I was a kid, my dad used to laugh at the crazy things that. professors believed and just you kids wait till you get out to the real world you'll see how things are and he was mostly right but now we've seen kids who were educated to believe in critical race theory and all transgenderism gender ideology all of this well they graduated and then moved into the establishment into human resources departments and corporations and so on and so forth uh, and in media and now we are seeing the insane ideas that were confined to campuses in the 90s and early 2000s now controlling uh, important liberal institutions like the New York Times, the Washington Post, and universities. We can't afford to ignore these abstract, weird ideas because once they get take hold in the uh, elite networks, we're done. You, you know, one of the strengths of the book is the way you really delve into the psychology of things, not just the actions. Uh, taking place, but what is going on in people's heads? Uh, and you, you bring up a, a, an old term, Ketman, K-E-T-M-A-N. What is Ketman? Yeah, Cheswell Miwash brings this up in his great 1950s book, The Captive Mind. Uh, Ketman is a Persian word that uh, a rough analogy would be hypocrisy, but there's more to it than that. In uh, someone who is practicing Ketman, uh, it's putting on a false face so they can go along to get along within uh, a, a dictatorial order or some sort of regime. So, uh, in, the, so in Poland, say, uh, communist Poland, uh, people, intellectuals especially, learned to practice Ketman to pretend they agreed with the, uh, with the communist order to protect themselves, to maintain viability within that order. And they would tell themselves that, well, I'm putting up this false face to the world, but that, that, that will allow me to keep my, what I really believe hidden and inviolate. The problem with this, said Miwash, is that, you know, if you practice Ketman long enough, you come to believe it. Uh, you come to, to think that, uh, that maybe the, the, the fact that I'm acting as a faithful communist, I will actually become a faithful communist. And I think we see that too now in our, in our situation with uh, critical race theory, with uh, pride week, things like that, gender ideology. That so in order to maintain your viability within many middle class institutions, corporations, universities and so forth, you have to pretend that you agree with it. And uh, the danger with that is, as I said, is that over time you will go native. This is why it was so important to men like Václav Havel and Alexander Solzhenitsyn to live not by lies. Do not allow yourself to be corrupted by the role you have to play in order to go along to get along. Yeah, the, the Solzhenitsyn is that that's his line, right? Live not by lies. That's the antidote. You can't you can't start living by lies because it will start affecting you. You it's hard to maintain. I mean, cognitively, it's hard to maintain that dual 
existence. I, I mean, Rod, I've seen, I've seen my friends and my colleagues who, are, who, who, who I knew always as moderate liberals. They were good people. They would always vote Democrat, of course, but they weren't, they weren't vindictive. They wouldn't go along with, with uh, you know, nailing a, a conservative for a bad joke or something. They might, you know, just frown at it. But re- recently, I mean, I've seen them go along with things that I know they know are wrong. I know they know. But, but I, I've come to wonder, maybe they really don't quite know that they are cooperating with some lies. That some, some, something clicks in their heads and they're, they're okay. They're okay. Yeah, they, they flip. And uh, I, I think that, I, I remember Mark Lilla, right after Trump was elected, he wrote this book, The Once and Future Liberal. As an anti-Trump liberal, he was criticizing the left for its extremism and the fact that you, know, you people on my side are driving people to vote for Trump. Well, he was excoriated by that. One of his colleagues at Columbia called him a white supremacist, a fellow traveler of David Duke. I mean, that, that sends right there a signal about the cost of dissent, even within the left. But I, I think that we've seen this summer when after the George Floyd shooting, I have seen a number of people, even conservative Christians, flip completely on the racial issue. I, I was just, uh, as you and I are talking, I was just up in Alabama for business and had some conversations with friends in Birmingham and they're all seeing the same thing. These are all conservative Christians. Uh, most of them are evangelicals, but they have seen uh, it, they've seen it happen in their own churches. How it is impossible to have any kind of reasonable conversation about race and what to do about racism, because if you don't agree with critical race theory, Black Lives Matter, and all that, uh, you will be denounced even within your own church as a racist. Uh, one man I talked to said that uh, he can't even talk to his nieces who are church-going evangelical Christians, white, white kids, because just to ask a question about why do you believe this, how can you defend this, is considered to be an aggression. And I, I think, look, we're not even, we're not ready for this in this country, but it happened in, as my research showed, this is exactly the script that happened in late imperial Russia. Uh, the, the, uh, the Marxists got no traction at all with people in late 19th century Russia until they began in the, in the 1890s to lose faith in the institutions of their society. And they, as, as the, the bourgeois uh, people began to wonder, well, is, is this really something I can support, the czarist order? That's when the Marxists gained traction. And they did it initially, the Bolsheviks did, by appealing to young people. And parents of young people in universities would not go against their children, uh, even though their children were preaching the overthrow of the order. And, uh, you know, eventually we know the story here. Uh, World War I came and the, the regime fell. But it happened so quickly. And uh, Solzhenitsyn warned so loudly and insistently that the, the greatest mistake that people in the West can make is assuming that what happened in Russia could not happen anywhere on Earth. I think we're, we have lived now to see Solzhenitsyn have them, but the rest of us have lived to see that begin to come true right here in the West. You know, you call progressivism a religion, which means what, what's happening right now isn't really a culture war uh, the way, you know, we understood it back in the 80s or 90s. 
What are the features that make this more a religious war and progressivism itself a religion? Yeah, well, that, that is one of the most important questions I talk about in the book. First of all, I, I, I draw on something that uh, Milan Kundera, the, the great Czech emigre novelist, wrote in The Unbearable Lightness of Being. He said that always on the left, they, they conceive of history as a grand march. And it doesn't matter who they have to trample over, but the march toward the future, towards this utop- progressive utopia uh, where we've shaken off all the chains of the past, it continues. And I think that liberalism in this country has become that. It, has, it is based on a, an axiomatic, a dogmatic belief that the future, the only thing standing between us and happiness and total happiness are uh, the chains of the past, of religion, of, uh, cl- of class exploitation, though now it is much more about uh, identity politics than it is about class. Right. And so I, I, I don't know if this is in the final version of the book, but I did have in one version uh, a quote I pulled from The New York Times. There was a big, long story about transgenderism and this, this kid, uh, a boy trans, uh, transitioning into a girl. And I quoted one woman who worked at the clinic saying this is going to be so great when 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 this is mainstream now, uh, we will have such great sex that you can't even imagine how good the sex is going to be. Completely unironic, right? But this is a religious conviction that you know, we are headed towards utopia. And they have the, it's based on this idea of what it is to be a human being. They believe this basically Marxist view that the human being is complete, human nature is completely malleable. And so, uh, one thing that I, I find so frustrating about uh, our side, the conservative side, social conservative and religious conservatives, is we don't recognize the radicalism of what we're dealing with here. This is we, we think that, as you indicated a second ago, we tend to think that we can reason with them, that there's a common basis for reason there. But it's gone. It is totally gone. And uh, if you think about, Mark, that back in the fall of 2015, there was that famous incident on the campus of Yale when uh, Nicholas Christakis, the professor, went out there to try to uh, reason with a mob of students who were angry over race. And this is all on video. They, they, they were screaming at him. They were cursing him. They were emoting. And he was trying to use reason to engage them. And it was completely useless. For me, that moment was a real a signal moment when I knew that things had really flipped in this country. I mean, these are the best and brightest kids. Oh, sure. And, you know, I, this is not in the book, but I'll tell you this story. I, last year, uh, 2019, I was in Cambridge, Mass., uh, on business, and I, I ended up having lunch with a friend who had just just finishing up a graduate program at Harvard. He was a European, a Catholic, and a conservative. And I asked him, "What's the most important thing you've learned here at Harvard?" He said, "How fragile the American elites are." I said, "Well, what do you mean?" And he went on to say that there at Harvard, the, the best university in the world, we we're told, uh, there were professors in his government classes who would start out the semester saying, here are the things we're not going to talk about because I've been advised by some of you students that it will trigger you. He said, um, I couldn't believe how fragile they were and how professors yielded to this. But uh, my, my friend, my European friend said, and yet every one of these students were completely assured of their uh, 
of the rightness of their role to rule. Um, and I, I think that that is really something uh, that, that we are going to see play out, the, the implications of that, that these people are going to move into positions of power in our society, but they will use, I, I believe they're going to use the mechanisms of soft totalitarianism to to control the deplorables. Uh, and we could, we could talk about this in a second, but you know, things like the Chinese social credit system, we're going to have that here. You, I mean, progressivism is a religion. You call social justice a, a cult, and religions and cults have to punish heretics, right? Disagreement is, is a form of heresy, and uh, they're going to try, yeah, very hard. Let, let me ask you about these two terms. One is woke capitalism, and the other one is surveillance capitalism. What are those two things? Well, surveillance capitalism is a term that I got from uh, Shoshana Zuboff. She is a former Harvard Business School professor who wrote a big doorstop of a book called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. And briefly, her argument is that around the year 2000, Google pioneered a new way of making money by accumulating as much data as possible about individuals and figuring out how to, how to package that and sell it uh, to advertisers. And uh, this went on. I mean, they were really good at this. And then Amazon does the same thing. So does Facebook and Twitter and so on. Uh, what she says is that by, through, the, through consumer capitalism, through, uh, by making our lives more convenient for ourselves, by using devices like the Alexa, the smartphone, and so forth, major corporations are constantly gathering uh, minute levels of personal data about us and using it to sell us things. What's interesting about it, and Zuboff sounds like a leftist, uh, but it's, this is something the right should pay attention to, is uh, they're going beyond figuring out how to sell us things and are figuring out how to make us desire the things they want us to desire. And we're, most ordinary people are completely oblivious to this because we just turn on our smartphone and go about our lives. But the data is being collected constantly. That's surveillance capitalism. Woke capitalism is uh, the idea that uh, major corporations have decided it is in their business interest to uh, push constantly uh, identity politics from the left, sexual politics, things like that. In the past, you know, you and I are old enough, Mark, to remember that when big business did not get involved in social controversies, they've decided now to that it is in their interest to be seen as completely woke. So you have a situation, I wrote about this on my blog recently, where Nicole Hannah-Jones, the matriarch of the 1619 Project, she was paid by Shell Oil to come to Houston and give a big speech about racial identity politics. Paid well, I'm sure, very well. Oh, no, I, no doubt. And uh, I mean, it's really, really something. And a lot of old-fashioned conservatives, I mean, I'm 53, people my age and older, we have such a Cold War mindset, or at least an old school Republican mindset that says the, the business is good, business is the you know, uh, uh, enemy of the state, and therefore we, we have this sort of, we bow the knee at business naturally without realizing what we're doing. This is deadly, because when I talk about the, the regime, the soft totalitarian regime that is emerging, I don't mean simply the state. In fact, the state is probably less important as an actor than this network of big business, of surveillance capitalists. So uh, th this is, uh, we have to have this paradigm shift within conservatism 
to understand the, the state and institutions of civil society, like the media, like universities and even churches, they are all part of, an, of, a, of a coalescing regime that is against a traditional Christianity, that is against classical liberalism, the idea that we should, we should be able to talk about things and have freedom of expression, freedom of thought. All these institutions are lining up against us, and they will use their power against us. There, there's so much more to talk about in, in the book, Rod. You go into the importance of cultural memory, of, of how the family is, is a haven, a mode of resistance, the importance of being alone, getting away from the crowd, but also finding a few comrades, and, and the importance of accepting suffering in your life. So, but we're, let, let me ask one final question, Rod, that, that gets into a section you call God's Saboteurs. Who are God's saboteurs? <laughs> well, God's saboteurs are those who are willing to suffer but work within the system to undermine it at, at every point. Um, I think about uh, people, gosh, I, I talked to so many people over there in, uh, in, in former Eastern Europe. And one of the, the great heroes I learned about, he died uh, back in the 90s, I believe, but his name is Sylvester Kirchmeri. And he was a Slovak physician, a young man who was part of Father Kolakovich's initial circles. And he later became one of the, pil- uh, the, the pillars of the underground church. When he was thrown in prison and tortured for his faith in the early 50s, he had to make a resolution that he was never going to resent the people who did this to him because he knew it would be his spiritual destruction. And so he said that I, I began to think of myself as God's probe meaning that he believed that the Lord put him there for a reason. He had to learn to accept his suffering as a means, uh, as a way to holiness, but also to learn what he could about what the enemy was doing so he could serve the kingdom, to undermine this regime for the kingdom of God. And that, that is such an important point, Mark, that we have got to learn in this, in this country. Uh, not only the the sense of uh, collaboration with each other in, in small groups. I mean, Father uh, Dr. Kirchmeri talked in, about in prison how he came to really stand by and support his Protestant friends who were there in prison with him. But we we also have got to learn to accept suffering. This is probably the most important chapter in the book. Is the one in which these former dissidents, including one man in Russia, Alexander Ogorodnikov whose face was paralyzed. I was talking to him in Moscow. His face was partially paralyzed because of the beatings he took. But all of them said that if Christians are not willing to suffer real losses, loss of job, loss of status, loss of family, and even perhaps loss of freedom in your life, you're not willing to do that for the sake of the faith, then you are going to collapse, no doubt about it. So I think we're all called to be God saboteurs in the sense that we can't run and hide in the hills which is as, as the misinterpretation of the Benedict option had it, that we all can ride, hide in the hills. That's not going to happen. But we have got to learn how to be uh, saboteurs within the system, just as Father Kolakovich instructed his followers to do. The book is Live Not By Lies, a manual for Christian dissidents. Rod Dreher, thank you for joining us. It's been a great pleasure. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.